die for a smaller number as it is. All right. For our uh, first um, message today, we have our Bible study. This time it will be conducted by uh, Mr. Matthew Steele. It's on it's lesson four on James 2, uh, all about impartiality. So, Mr. Steele, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ranch. Hello. Should we try that again? Do I need to step back? Okay. Uh, don't interrupt Rick. Hello. Good to see everybody. Actually, more faces than I thought we'd have today. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad everybody's here. Um, no favorites is the, the title of our lesson today. Do you guys have favorites? Mm, not going to say, right? Not going to say. Are you the favorite? Were you ever a teacher's pet, like the favorite student of the teacher? I was. I had one teacher that I think I was her favorite and she kind of looked out for me, which I appreciated. It's nice to be favored, though, isn't it? I mean, I'm, as we were going through this study, I was like, but I like to be favored. Who doesn't like to be favored? But, of course, it's kind of a play on words here, too, because uh, N.T. Wright says, no favorites. And yet, he favors us all, doesn't he? We are all his favorites, in a, in a certain sense. So, um, just as a way of introduction, I thought it would be useful to remind everybody, we'll go back through the introduction that he has here, and then maybe start off with the open question. So, he says, I have often been embarrassed in church, but one of the worst moments was on Easter morning. So, we'll, we'll give him a break for Easter. He really meant to do Passover, but, you know, we'll, we'll help him understand that later. I had arrived at a service in what I thought was a good time, but there was already a large queue outside and it wasn't moving. And it'd be interesting to know at what point in his, his uh, career, you know, as a clergyman in, in the ministry in the Church of England, uh, this was happening. Because was he kind of known? And, you know, sometimes people in the know get special access all by themselves, right? So I was thinking about that when he was describing this. Clearly the place was already packed. I was wondering what to do when a familiar voice greeted me. I turned around and saw a man that I knew a bit, a very senior and distinguished person in the city. I was flattered to be recognized and singled out. But then came the moment. Come with me, he said conspiratorially. He led me forward past the queue, which is a line, line. I'm just going to translate that from the English uh, to one of the ushers. He said, I'm Lord Smith, of course, changing the guy's name. Uh, I, I would be grateful if you could find my friend and I somewhere to sit. Before I had time to think, the two of us were escorted right to the front of the church where we were given excellent seats. And so, of course, he then asks us in this kind of open question, 
describe a time when you were on the receiving end of favoritism or showed favoritism to someone else. Does anybody have a fun story? Dalla does. <laughs> Rick's wandering around. Okay, when you were? I had a collision on the ski slope with another skier. <coughs> um, the guy uh, hit an, a guy apparently who was from India. And um, the, the lieutenant who came, the police officer who came, went to school at OSU. I grew up 30 minutes from Stillwater. Um, there was a lieutenant on the squad whose last name was Vance. Um, that and the fact that it really wasn't my fault, I was found not at fault, even though I apparently broke the guy's cheekbone. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Useful favoritism right there. We don't mind when it happens to us. Anybody else have, have any other stories you want to share? It's okay to be favored. Ron, do you have a story? Oh. <laughs> You can tell me later. <laughs> now, now everybody's going to be asking you that. <laughs> Anyone else? No? I have one. So uh, my first job in the U.S. after I moved here, um, I was working for Pamwell Publishing. And I'm like low guy on the totem pole, right? I'm working in the help desk. I'm just the break fix computer guy, I was uh, the lone help desk person, and there was like internal stuff that I didn't know about, that other people wanted that job, you know, and I'm coming in from the outside, I didn't know any of this. So I had enemies, right, within the IT department, because they all wanted the job that I got. So uh, that's kind of the backstory to it. So one particular day, I meet the president, the CEO of the company. And he is the biggest Anglophile. He just loves everything England. So we become buddies. Lowest guy in the totem pole just met the, the, the CEO, the president, and we're now buddies. To the point that at different times he'd see me in the hall, hey, Matt, come here. And he would tell me about the latest thing that he got either from England or when he went there last or whatever, because they had an office in England. And uh, there was this one time where I was actually brought into the boardroom. There was a big meeting. Uh, I think the company was buying another company. And I was going to have a role in this, so somehow they thought I needed to be part of the big meeting. So there's all these execs around, my peers in IT, people that wanted my job before, all of those things. And uh, in comes the president, yells across the boardroom. Matt, you're not going to believe this. Come here. And hustles me over to the side by the coffee bar as he's making some coffee, and he's offering me one. He's telling all about these free tickets to, he got to the Royal Albert Hall in London the week before because he was there visiting. And we became, you know, continued to be kind of buddies. It's pretty nice to have the president your friend, you know, because you never know when you need to get out of trouble, right? But of course, I got a lot of stick for it too, 
you know, from those peers that, you know, maybe didn't like me for some weird reason. So that's, that's, that's my story. Hi, yeah. Well, we're going we're gonna to answer some questions, Larry. Was, was God in fire involved in what, what happened to you in that experience? I think God was involved in my entire experience there. And I, I can tell you some, some other time why that is. But let's jump on to the first question. So in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, um, it says in verse 1, James states clearly that we must practice the faith of the Lord Jesus, the anointed king of glory, without favoritism. What example does he give of showing favoritism? And this is a pretty straightforward question. So, Mark? Yeah, it's, um, it's obviously favoritism to the rich and well-to-do, um, which at this time I, I would see could have happened easily with somebody who, and it happens today too, if you're well distinguished you can tell somebody pulls up in the big Rolls Royce out here, we'd, we know he had some money, um, but it's, it's fairly straightforward, yeah. Anybody have any other thoughts about that? I mean his example here is rich and poor, and certainly in that day Rich and poor were probably easier to identify, right, by the clothing, whether or not you had the richer clothing or that you were maybe poor and you didn't have a change of clothes, you didn't have a Sabbath best to put on, you know. What other ways could we make that discrimination, however inadvertently, for order that question? So James's example is, is preferring the rich over the poor, but uh, there's other ways that we can prefer one person versus another. The way I think of it, I remember having a teacher in school talk about, I don't know if he's talking about these verses, but he referred to the idea that some of the ways we do that is we find people who have money and we begin to talk to them about our need. That you know, we have this need and that need so we kind of flow to those and show favoritism in maybe our conversation with people we know have pull either in a job like you've got, like if you'd have went by the CEO that you knew you'd become friends with and you knew that job opening was there, that would have been showing favoritism in a different way where you would have started to use your English uh, connection <laughs> to possibly say, yeah, I'm really looking for a job. But um, I think that's another way, in the, and my teacher was basically saying, if you truly have faith in, in God, you won't do that. You'll trust him for those things that you have need of. Interesting. Yeah. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? So one of the ways I thought, just really quick, we can, in the church, in the, specifically in the church setting, maybe we're not identifying when somebody comes in who's rich and who's poor, but maybe we're... Uh, showing partiality and respect, favoritism to those that we like versus not like, right? Because that's really what, what it's coming down to. Maybe, you know, there would be a motivation to get something from that person if they're rich. 
but sometimes we also do the inverse and maybe not want to fellowship with or encourage or help somebody who maybe grates on us a little bit. We all have different personalities, right? We all connect with different people. That's okay, but that would be a further challenge, right, that maybe James would ask us to consider, is are we preferring certain people over others because of these discriminatory things? And, and I don't mean that in a, in a really negative way. So he says in, ver in question two, according to verses four through six, what are the results of practicing favoritism? What are the results of practicing favoritism? Right? Don't hit him with it. The most obvious one is that it creates cliques within the group. It f factionalizes the congregation. Instead of us being united as one, we become little pockets of this and this and this. So just if I can ask you a follow-up question on that, Rich, that what, what's the outcome of that? Division. And assumptions, right? We make judgments about that other group. And we, we have suppositions about what their motivations are. Yeah, that causes that division. Larry? Um, what has come to my mind on this particular uh, matter, um, what he's trying to make, if that's happening in a congregation, that's a, that's wrong, and that needs to be that needs to be corrected. If we're looking down upon an individual because of, of his wealth or lack of lack of wealth, you're doing wrong. That stop doing that. That needs to be corrected. I don't see that happening here. Uh, Curtis, and then Ben at the front. I think that it can have a ripple effect if you have influence over people and people notice that you, either through your verbal expressions or just your behavior that you don't care for someone or you look down upon someone that they can take, take on that same uh, behavior. And so uh, it kind of becomes one of those situations where, you know, I kind of look at it at a even, uh, you know, just a early human development level, right? You know, you, I, I work so often with kids uh, at, you know, the adolescent age, and there's pressure with kids to, you know, they might be a part of a group uh, and friends with certain people, and so if that group has expressed uh, any level of disdain or uh, for another individual or another person or another group, then that has a significant influence on that person uh, to, to, to not associate with that person in fear of themselves becoming a part of, uh, uh, you know, the group of people who are being looked down upon. So I think that there can be a ripple effect. You talk about the outcome of, you know, showing partiality. I think that we have to remember that our behavior 
through our actions as well as, of course, through our words that we can influence other individuals to do the same thing, to model our behavior, uh, even if they don't want to just because they value, uh, you know, they value what, you know, when you have influence over someone, that person values the way that you look at them. And so in response to that, they might try to emulate things that they think would, you know, maintain that, you know, high view of you. So, and therefore, you end up causing other people to emulate that, you know, impartial behavior. And then Ben down here. Well, I think uh, as far as having a structure in church is important. I think that also it's important to include people, but you want to also be able to have your support group, the individuals within the church that you go to with problems or concerns or even good news. Uh, it's good to have people that you know that you can go to without being criticized as well. So. So it's kind of double-sided. It's not just everyone should be included on every step of everyone's life. It's, it's a good balance. Yeah. It's tricky, right? Because it's, it's all about human relationship. And um, newsflash, it's not straightforward, is it? We're all very complicated beings. Have these inner relationships. Um, there's also, uh, I mean kind of looking at some of the words that James uses here. He's, he's talking about evil and, and sin. Um, but evil in this sense, too, I think it's important to remember, can be uh, translated as harmful. So maybe there wasn't evil intent when we favor one over the other. But it, it, the one that's not favored, it hurts. It can really hurt, which leads to that division which leads to that isolation because now a, a, a group of people start behaving that way. Um, and it reminded me when Curtis was talking about it, we're seeing you know, the kind of the rise in social media of a social credit system, right? Uh, it's a version of that and you have standing in the community and in the early church especially, you had convert, converts from literally slaves through to the super wealthy. I, so, I mean, we, we have maybe a discrepancy in income levels and personal background and so on as a church family, but nobody's a slave. And yet, in that community, he was saying, you treat one another the same, which is pretty radical. Question three. Um, we often hear the phrase, God's upside-down kingdom, meaning that God acts in ways opposite to how the world tends to act. What upside-down value do you see in verse 5? Let me, uh, I could remind everybody of that. James says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones, and this is in the New Living, sorry. Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Any thoughts? 
What upside down value do you see in verse 5? Uh, what, is, what comes to my mind on this particular matter is that uh, the world looks from the outside and, and God looks from the inside. What's going on in the attitude of the person or is what is important to God, whereas in the world, they, they, look, they look from the outside. And to be rich is to be looked, I mean, they look that they're better than those that are not. And that's, I don't think God looks at it that way. He looks, he has the power to know <laughs> what's going on inside, and that's what's important. I was basically going to say the same thing that um, Larry just said, but just say that you know the world values success as far as what have you attained? Do you have the nicest car? Are you doing this and that, the nicest clothes and all these things? And of course, God looks at it as what's in your heart and how, what are you doing to be changing and not seeking all these things of the world, not being a part of the world, but looking to him for everything. And it does say that it's harder for a rich man uh, to enter the kingdom for that's like a camel going through a needle. So, I mean, it's just basically um, that he looks to the heart of a person and what they're doing, not what they're trying to attain in the world. Right. Right. Wealth begets power, and power, absolute power, corrupts absolutely. So they'll drag you in the courts. They'll um, abuse that power. The abuse of power can be disruptive to an entire society. And then also the flip side, or, or, or like an associated element of that is wealth gives power, and power lets you fix lots of problems, right? without relying on God. And we are designed as creatures to be reliant on God for every part of our life. He designed us this way. So if we have this um, illusion that we can solve our own problems with our money, with our power, then I, I think we miss out on a lot of lessons uh, that go towards what Larry was saying about the, the heart and how we, we develop, right? And so it, it, the inverse is seems to be true is what James is saying is that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor as a whole or certainly to the not to the rich as a whole uh, because it's the poor in heart it's the poor that struggle through life that generally get those personal growth in, in, in faith Ben did you have another point Well, I think uh, as far as um, as far as looking towards uh, God and and looking for the right path, I think that it's up to us to take the first steps and to uh, continue that journey instead of thinking that if I give to the church, then I will receive what I want. Uh, I think God also blesses uh, people who actually pursue and take the first 
steps and uh, if the actions are pure then God will bless it as well as far as um, also on the flip side of, of uh, just uh, being meek you also have to uh, want to pursue God actively Yeah, just like this is a subject where, so would have it been favoritism for that guy to take the poorest man in that church and take him to the front and have him sit down? To me, favoritism is favoritism. So I think uh, the idea is not, even though I understand what we're talking about with the wealth, but it's not in the wealth. It's, again, it goes back to what we've been talking about, the heart. So... God simply doesn't want anybody to show favoritism, period. And whether you have you know, a million dollars in the bank or have nothing, uh, I think the idea is the Lord's trying to get us to say, you have to rely on me whether you have money or don't have money. So, And then favoritism won't be there if you're looking at just people's hearts anyway because I would hope we would accept the wealthiest man in Tulsa if he came in here and not said, ah, he's wealthy. We know about the wealthy, you know. <laughs> and kind of keep him to the back of the church, you know. So right. same way if the poorest person came in here who didn't have anything. So anyway, that's my thought. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Right over. Um, what I get from that verse is um, the poor the poor need need to rely on the Lord. They have no choice. They have no other resources. So the more that they don't have, the more that they ask from the Lord, the more that they see what God does for them. I mean, you see that in third world countries, um, Christians who have nothing, and they have to pray, they have to rely on God to supply their needs, and they see that happen. So the more they see that happen, the more their faith grows. So they're going to have the greater faith because they have that closer relationship with the Lord because of their need. Yeah, and I just had a thought while you were describing that and going with what Keith said. What if the richest man in Tulsa came in to our church and we had favoritism? And then we all started looking to him to solve our problem, right? Because he could bring those resources. And now we're not learning to rely on God, we, we've replaced that, right? Uh, it's, it's, it can be so disturbing, right, to, to Christian faith. It's, it's pretty powerful, and yet it's a simple question. So in question four, he says, when have you, and this is really where, you know, kind of squirm in your seat here, when have you or your Christian community failed to obey God in practicing equality of treatment? Anybody want to fess up to an example? <laughs> I mean, he, he asks some pretty strong questions. Darla? I've been thinking, what if we treat people differently who are from a different political party than we are? Um, what if we treat them like they're a pariah? We have to be careful with that. And I hope that I haven't, but I think it's important that we be careful not to. Well, we've seen a massive examples of that. Um, 
oh, what was it, a couple of days ago, Renee was telling me about an article uh, that she was reading about the resignation of pastors in the U.S., just across all churches. And it's like 40% of pastors in the U.S. are looking to get out of the ministry because of how divisive politics have become in church, and especially in COVID, and that further dividing on political lines. And it's just like, it's exhausting to even try and manage this. So these are real, real challenges that people are, are having. Anybody bold enough to have a personal example? Mark. <laughs> yeah, it's not personal, but it's on a bigger scale, like what you're saying, actually, in the sense of, um, what tying into this question is how a lot of churches have been targeted because if you're not speaking about how gay marriage is good or transgenderism is good, then all churches, all Christian churches are bigoted and messed up. No, we're, we're following God's laws. We're following what the Bible, the Word of God says. Um, so that may be seen by the world as inequality, but at the end of the day, we're following Christ's example and what God says to do. So don't single us out. We, we Christians have our beliefs. Um, and, and, and we're sticking to it. Yeah, I mean, N.T. Wright says equality of treatment. Uh, and I think that's a, a, an important thing because the world has an upside-down view of the word equality. Um, so are we... Are we treating people with respect regardless of their income, regardless of their, uh, what do you want to call it, struggles in life, their sin, right? A sin is a sin is a sin. Uh, and if they're trying to walk the Christian life and overcome that sin, regardless of what it is, how are we treating them? You know, are we treating them as a overcoming believer or well, that sin has got a special kind of condemnation, right? These are very serious and challenging questions. And I would say that uh, in a broader sense, the, the, the Christian community is <clears throat> definitely, I mean, all Christians, right, in, in, as, a, as a broad stroke, have identified different sins as being worse than others. Right? There's worse outcomes or consequences for certain sins than others, and that's just natural. But as far as overcoming that sin, I mean, we're all sinners, right? And James, well, we're going to get into it here because he talks about what happens then if we, if we break the law. Um, let's see. Let's jump to verse 7. We're just kind of uh, running out of time here. Um, I mean, uh, question 7. So he says, in contrast um, to the world and uh, a worldly view of treating rich and poor or, uh, what should we say, liked and disliked, whatever our criteria is for preferring others over others, he says, in contrast uh, is the royal law of Jesus. What is this royal law? Question seven. What is this royal law? 
Larry? That's right. Golden rule, right? Golden rule. So, have you thought about what that means? Because in this, I think, I think in that royal law, right, the, the, the golden rule is all relationship, all treating of one another in every walk of life. It is going to be the second law of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus says, on these two hang all the Lord and the prophets, right? Love the Lord your God with all your mind and with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. So treating our neighbor as ourself, what does that practically mean if we were all to do that in life? So seeing life through their eyes as best you can, right? Not making a judgment, but trying to understand their walk, their life, what struggles that they have. But how does it change us, though? If we love our neighbor as ourselves, if we're all doing that, Ben? Affording them to the same room to make the mistakes that we afford ourselves, to have patience with one another, and um, and actually be there for each other. Yep. Carla. In that comment of loving your neighbor as yourself, it implies that you also love yourself. So, <clears throat> don't let yourself be in an abusive situation. A long time ago, I was in an abusive work situation, and when I loved myself enough to get myself out of it, I feel like God blessed me for it. Yeah, that, that is an important thing. If you, if you demean yourself, have a low expectation of yourself, then how are you supposed to love your, your neighbor well enough? Ken? It occurs to me that as our church grows, where's it going to get our, where, where's it going to get growth from? It's going to get hopefully, people who don't know God yet that will come here and they won't know what is usually done, you know. Uh, they'll need someone to take them under their wing and help them and show them in a loving way by treating them the way they're supposed to be treated and that way they'll learn how to treat others. Oh. Ron, was that just a scratch? Did you? Okay. <laughs> so here's some thoughts that I put down here. Um, in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, if everybody did this, it ends all war. All wars is done. All fighting is done. All arguments are done. All hurtful judgments and condemnation, like what Ben was talking about, are just done. We only have acts of loving, caring for one another's life, walking in their shoes, considering what, what their life is like. All marital problems are solved by following this law. All family relationships uh, and, and schisms in families are solved uh, when this law is followed and res respected. 
All the protections of society, from the weakest to the strongest, are protected because everybody is treated the same. And if all the rich people are following this law, then there won't be these super rich that have more money than sense, quite literally, and, and, and then abuse their power because they'll actually feel the desire in Christ to then bless the poor. Not as gifts, but as means in which to bring those that are in, in difficult times up. I mean, this is a very simple statement, isn't it? It's very hard to do, and yet it's totally radical. It's upside down, as N.T. Wright is saying, to all the world's view. If we just did this one thing, loved our neighbor as ourself, we would have the kingdom of God. Go ahead, Larry, and then we'll have one more question. It isn't love the first fruit of the Spirit. And, and if we have close fellowship with him, if we're attached to the vine, are we able to, are those fruits of the Spirit able to be evident in a person's life? I think that they are. If we're attached to the vine, because he says we can't we can't bear fruit without being attached to him. And he says that he is the vine. Anybody else have any other thoughts? Reg? This one caution we have, this is not to discredit judgment because we are we will be judging angels we will be judging one another. if we can't judge what's going on around us how can we deal with those things later on but judgment without being judgmental judgment with mercy and consideration of what's going on around them yeah and you know this attention there right between judgment not even judgmental, but judgment and mercy. Um, God could bring his divine judgment, righteous judgment on every single one of us and wipe us out. I mean, we're all fallen, all sinned, right, and fallen short of the glory of God. Mercy replaces that. It doesn't say, oh, never mind, it doesn't matter. It doesn't say that we... Oh, you didn't really mean that. And, and minimize the things that are done when we break the law. It says, no, that was bad. That had negative consequences for your life, for those in your life. But I am overriding that with mercy. And there's an interesting uh, translation on that word judgment as well because it, it essentially means separation. Separation. Uh, and we know that from Scripture, right, that our sin has separated us from God. When we are, you know, arrested and put in, a, in the court, we are separated in the box, aren't we? We're in the box, separated from the jury, separated from loved ones, separated from the judge. We are set apart. You have failed. You have done this thing. 
And then mercy is the reverse of that. It's restoration, reconciliation, no more separation. Curtis, did you have your hand up? You didn't? Okay. All right. Uh, I was going to do one more question, but I think we're kind of short of time. Thank you, everyone. I hope, uh, I hope it was good discussion. I enjoyed it. Um, let's keep going on James, and we'll have lesson five next week.